and he figured he's being taken care of. Well, in fact, they were over there scalping him. Oh. And so he lived for a while. Williamson went over there in the last few minutes that he was lying, and he said, did we win? And he said, yes, we did. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. History Man is excited to have Dennis Chastain talking to us today. He is the Blue Wall Vice President of the Pickens County Historical Society, an interpretive naturalist, and tour guide and outdoor writer for the South Carolina Wildlife Magazine. So welcome, Dennis. Oh, it's good to be with you, Eric. Dennis, we're excited to have you here today. We're, we're going to be talking about a broad range of subjects uh, regarding South Carolina and the Revolutionary War, specifically as it relates to the upstate, uh, which is which is kind of your, your bailiwick, and uh, we're excited to hear what you have to say. Start us off by Tell us a little bit about the, the Cherokee leading up to the Revolutionary War. Well, you know, I'm, number one, I'm tickled to be able to tell this story because I've been writing for 30 years, and I know a good story when I see one. And the story of the beginning of the Revolution in South Carolina is, is a compelling story, and, and much of it is, is largely untold. You know, you learn certain aspects of it, facts and figures, and maybe remember some of the people's names, the heroes' names and things like this, but the pers personalities involved and, and the cascading events, and I'm gonna start with this. This, this is not something that is, is commonly known, but there were three, the, the British had a three-part plan to attack Charleston in three different ways. Number one, Sir Peter Parker and his fleet was going into Charleston Harbor uh, waylay Fort Moultrie and then move inland and Charleston was theirs. Didn't quite work out that way. The other aspect was the Cherokees. Somebody had enough familiarity with the vulnerabilities of, of the South Carolina colony to understand that it could only exist with an alliance or working relationship with the Cherokees. And so they conspired with Alexander Cameron who was the deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs and actually had a really wonderful relationship, long-standing relationship with the Cherokees. He had been commander at Fort Prince George, which I'll talk about a little later, the British's most interior fort in, in Eastern America. Uh, it was located right up here in this area in Pickens County on, on what was then the Kiwi River, but now underwater under Lake Kiwi. Uh, but anyway, they understood that that relationship with Cherokees was fundamental, and if they started attacking the settlers, the settlers were the vanguard that the colonial government was basically sending from Charleston out into the frontier as protection against the Cherokees. In other words, the Cherokees go on rampage, they're gonna attack the settlers first before they get to us, and maybe we can, right. can handle the situation like that, because they, uh, there were folks in Charleston at that time who remembered the Yemassee War of 1715 when the local Indian tribe, the Yemassees, and, and a coalition that they put together of coastal Indian tribes just about overran the colony. And, and that could easily have been the, the end, and so they were constantly aware of that. So there was there's, there's, there's those two parts. Sir Peter Parker was going to attack by sea. They were going to incite insurrection among the Cherokees, create havoc, and take up the time of the militia, the provincial militia, which was not very large, and, and, and it was scattered around, so it was not a considerable force, C 
create confusion and chaos and 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 draw military support to help help stem the, these uh, Cherokee attacks among the settlers. And the third component was they had spies that had come in under the guise of being cattle drovers coming in from Pennsylvania and New York and and they arrived in the city and they and they were able to tell uh, Lord Cornwallis and, and Henry Clinton and others, you know, where the ammunition was stored, where the troops were deployed, how's the best way to get from Mount Pleasant over to Charleston, all these kinds of things. So they had this intimate knowledge of beforehand. So there's three-part plan there. Now, I'm specifically going to talk about the, the Cherokee aspect because, like I said, it's quite a story. So uh, let, me, let me stop you there. Yeah. You were actually saying the three-part plan, but that third part actually also involved some slaves, yes. correct? Yes, yeah, I really didn't talk about that. But yeah, the, part of the plan was to get the freedmen, the slaves, and, and this was not uncommon, particularly in Charleston uh, and, and a lot of the rice plantations, they would hire out slaves who had particular skills. There were some that were really quite accomplished as carpenters and some were, I mean, you know, all sorts of trades and the, and the plantation owner would allow them out and, you know, to make money and, and they could keep a part of that. And some of them had, had you know, enough to buy their freedom. And, and you know, the, every slave had a dollar value. And when you accumulated what your assessed value was, you could buy your freedom. And there were quite a number of people in that category. Well, the American patriots had, had found five or six people in that category of freedmen who were transferring notes down the line through the slave community to try to incite an insurrection. And, and of those four or five people who they had a good case for, there was one that was actually uh, pretty prominent and, and you know, had accumulated some wealth and had slaves of his own, and they hung him. <laughs> Is that in, right? in a very conspicuous way in the, you know, in the town center, hundreds of people there to witness the... the in Charleston of, itself. In, in Charleston to make an example of him, and pretty much that was the end of that. Right. There, there was no more slave insurrection of that. But that's, that's the important point, is it was a three-legged stool, and one of them was lost pretty quickly, but still, you know, we know the story of Peter Parker. Um, William Moultrie literally blew the britches off the back of Sir Peter Parker. I mean, literally, he did, uh, which must have been painful and terribly embarrassing, but it happened. And so now we're going to talk about the Cherokee aspect. Okay. Because being off up here in the remote corner of South Carolina, you know, I told some folks recently, we, the white folks up here in, in Greenville, Pickens, and Oconee Counties, we don't have a history before 1784 because we were still Indian Territory. Until the, 1777. The proclamation line actually went from... It, it is still in existence. It is still today the boundary between Anderson and Abbeville County. Is that right? Yeah. And it went northeast. Well, it, there were two legs to it. Okay. And they were surveyed at different times for different reasons. The first one is 1767. I believe that's correct. I'm almost certain that's correct. And they had tried several different things as a boundary. One was 30 miles south of, of, uh, of Fort Prince George. And the only problem was nobody could determine what was 35 miles, 30 miles south, you know, in a straight line. You could, you know, you could do it by watch or whatever. That didn't work. And they tried different things. Well, finally, they all agreed, they being the Cherokees and the early settlers and the colonial government, all agreed that, all right, let's get together at Dew's Corner 
which was William Dew's trading post down just outside of Dew West. And we'll start at that point, and, and, and I have the, the hand-drawn plat, and I don't want to get too far off of the weeds, but this is an interesting story. I was in the Charleston Library researching an article I was doing for the wildlife, South Carolina Wildlife Magazine, um, and, and the librarian there, Nick Butler, who is a wonderful fellow and, and has his PhD in Charleston. He's, he's a tremendous asset. I'd gotten to know him quite well, and I'm down there researching the King's Highway. Did an article on the King's Highway and one on, on the Cherokee Path, which was an ancient Cherokee path that cut across South Carolina. And Nick comes over to me, and he says, Dennis, when I came to work here, I don't really don't know what it is, but it's something I think you might want to look at. And so I went back in his office, and there it was a hand-drawn map of the Cherokee chiefs. There were seven Cherokee chiefs and John Pickens, who I think was a cousin of Andrew Pickens. He related to him, but not like his brother. John Pickens was a surveyor. It was signed by all of the Cherokee chiefs. They'd written out their name. They couldn't write in English, but anyway, an X and then a, a mark. And, he, and it said British Public Library off to the side. He said, I have no idea how, how this thing ended up down here or what to see. I said, well, I do. <laughs> and so it was so long. It was like 30 inches long by, I don't know, 10 or 12 inches like that. We had to make like six copies on his photocopy machine. Then I took it home, cut it and spliced it, and put it together. It's a, it's a tremendous resource. What they did is they started at Dew's Corner, William Dew's Trading Post right there at Corner Creek. And, and surveyed a straight line, hacking all the trees as they went along all the way to the Savannah River. Then they came back to Dew's Corner and went to a corner tree where on Reedy, Reedy River in what is now Greenville County, and that corner. So there was that line in 1767. Then in 1772, there was another line drawn, and I also did an article for the Wildlife Magazine. I've written a lot of articles for South Carolina Wildlife Magazine. On the mod I actually wrote two articles on the modern resurvey of the state border, which started in 1735 out on the, they drove up a cedar stake on where a little river runs in the ocean, surveyed up to, well, that's a long story. As a part of that, and believe it or not, William Moultrie was the surveyor on this leg from where Lake Wiley is now in Rock Hill to the blockhouse in Tryon. Okay, so they, they put up a cornerstone there, and, and that was the end of it. That was all the, the, we knew about the South Carolina border until 1813, when it finally picked up at the cornerstone there and went all the way to the Chattooga River. So, the Cherokees agreed that their eastern border, you know, white people on one side, Cherokees on the other side, would be a straight line from that stone established in 1772 down toward the corner tree where the 1766 or 67 survey hit. So those two me. So it's like an L now. And interestingly, that that border there along uh, from Dew's Corner to the Savannah River is even today the southern boundary of Anderson County and the northern boundary of Abbeville County. Is that right? And that other leg of the L, the one that runs to the stone up at the blockhouse of Tryon, is today the boundary between Greenville and Spartanburg counties and runs right down Main Street in Greer. There's a historical marker up is there. Is that right? right? Yeah. yeah. So this was Cherokee country. Yes. And yeah. So we were talking before our recording that uh, 
South Carolina is was a unique colony in comparison to other colonies that the British founded here in uh, North America. Um, how was that? How was it different than the others, and how did that play a role into well, that, how people looked at things? Yeah, that's a good point because I, I think a lot of folks don't understand this because you know the the Plymouth Colony, you know, in Massachusetts, that was they were escaping religious persecution, this kind of stuff. South Carolina was established simply as a political favor to the eight lords proprietor for their service to, I believe, it was King Charles the first, I think, you know, sixteen seventy. So. It was just a gift. You know, this was your reward for your patronage uh, to King Charles, and, and it was a money-making venture. And really, South Carolina was, throughout its existence as a British colony, the darling of the 13 colonies, because South Carolina was producing serious capital to the Lords of Proprietor. Now, it was bought from the Lords Proprietor uh, and I believe 1729 because the, the colonists were so disgusted with the lack of involvement. There was only exactly one of the eight lords proprietor who ever set foot on the colony, and that was Lord Ashley Cooper, who established a deerskin trading post just upstream from the original, you know, where Charlestown Landing is now, the original colony. And uh, so the, the, the colonists, they were called the Goose Creek men from the Goose Creek area there, were so upset, they demanded that the British government buy back the colony from the Lord's proprietor. And, and things operated smoothly for quite a while. But back to my original point, South Carolina was generating a serious amount of capital, sending it off to, to London, and, and everybody was tickled. And like I say, South Carolina was the darling of the 13 colonies. And that, that capital was basically coming from two things, pine, tar, pitch, and turpentine, naval stores, which we collect. I remember when I was in, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade, and they started talking about naval stores. I thought that was where you went and bought your you know, Navy outfit and foam rubber right, and right, uh, surplus right. tents yeah. and all yeah. that kind of stuff. I was an adult before I realized that naval stores was actually pine, tar, pitch, and turpentine. And believe this or not, I wrote an article in South Carolina Wildlife Magazine about pine tar pitch and, and turpentine production in the colonial period in South Carolina. And so it was producing a tremendous amount of revenues because of our longleaf pine population along the coastal areas up to about the fall line. And, and even over in Chiraw, in, in our northeastern counties are rich in, in uh, longleaf pine. So there's that. But the other one was the deerskin trade. This was bringing in big bucks, uh, literally bucks. The term buck for a dollar comes from, it was equivalent to one buckskin, how much you could buy with one buckskin. So anyway, I'll just give you one statistic. The height of the deerskin trade was about 1743, certainly in the 1740s. It kind of ebbed and flowed depending mm -hmm. on what the relationship with the Cherokees were. And also the, the deer population was, was suffering from all this deer harvest was 200,000 deer were going out of Charleston in one calendar year. That's incredible. To put that in perspective, that's double the deer harvest today. Think about all the deer hunters that are out there between August 15 and January 1st in South Carolina. Double the harvest during that period of time. So anyway, so South Carolina is contributing a, a tremendous amount of money and also, that deerskin trade for the colonial government was an important aspect. They realized very early on that they were vulnerable 
from Indi for Indian attack as in the Embassy War 1715 and establishing a relationship with the Cherokees was the, the, the colony would either survive or perish based on whether or not they could establish a relationship with the Cherokees, the most powerful, most numerous tribe in the Southeast. And, and Governor James Glenn, who was the colonial governor at that time, famously said that establishing a relationship with the Cherokees was key to Carolina. In other words, the, the colony would either perish or or flourish depending on that relationship. And he, he actually did more, I think, to foster that great relationship between the Cherokees uh, than any other of the colonial governors. So we've got that. Now I was talking about the three legs, you know, mm -hmm. Sir Peter Parker's right. attacking by sea, the right. slave insurrection, that didn't work out too well. Here's the Cherokee part of that story. Alexander Cameron, who's the Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs, uh, had the a- Cherokee love. Yeah, oh, he loved the Cherokees, and they loved him. They right. called him Scotchy. You know, right. he was Scots-Irish, like a lot of these early settlers, and had apparently bushy red hair, and so they called him Scotchy. And uh, they trusted him more than anybody else. Like I said, the, the relationship with, with James Glenn was great, but Scotchy was their man. And, you know, he had some influence because, you know, whatever their wishes and desires and when they wanted to report traitor abuses, he was deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs, he had good authority to go to the, to go to the colonial governor and say, we need to get set this straight. So that he was their man. Well, when the Patriots, you know, start a, a war against the colonial government, the one thing they figure, fear is attack by the Cherokees because the British, the, the Cherokees very early on sided with the British. And of course, it ended up costing them dearly, but they had to make the decision. You got to go one way or the other. Well, you got to remember a delegation of Cherokee leaders, I'm talking about you know, the chief headmen of the Cherokees, had been to London. They had seen the British Navy, the most powerful naval force in the world at that time. They had seen the finery. It'd be like going to Mars for us to have grown up in the the mountains of Tennessee or northwestern South Carolina, and next thing you know, you're standing among all this royal pageantry, and they took them to the Globe Theater and entertained them and everything, and they came back awe in awe. And so when the question is, are we going with these rebel patriots, or are we going with a colonial government? I'm going to guy, with the guy with the ships. <laughs> you know, if we get in trouble, they're, they're the ones we're going with, so it was a fatal mistake for the Cherokees. But, but anyway, that was, that was the plan. And so the third leg of that plan was Alexander Cameron was going to use his influence with the Cherokees to incite them to start attacking the interior settlers. Now what this would do is create havoc in the area and, and require that Charleston send up some of their military sor sources up here to help stem the, uh, the attacks. And, and there were quite a number of them. And, and they ranged as far as the Packlet River, uh, you know, over the Hampton family, Wade Hampton's family, uh, down almost to Columbia, all across, all across the upcountry, the Cherokee Territory. The attacks were widespread and, and, and really disrupted. Well, eventually Andrew Williamson, uh, who had been a cattle drover himself, uh, lived at uh, a plantation, Whitehall Plantation in Abbeville County, was assigned the task of punishing the Cherokees for their allegiance to the to the British Crown, and it started out as a 
kind of just just a small movement. There had been an attack in that area, and he probably got 45, 50, maybe 75 people in the surrounding area to sign on with the militia to go you know, attack the Cherokees. This wasn't a very popular thing because most people want to stay home and defend their own homes. But anyway, he's in, 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 in that original assemblage of militia was in Abbeville County. Then they moved up to encamp for a couple of days in the vicinity of that Dews Corner that I mentioned earlier where William Dews uh, training post was. Their numbers swelled to about 1,100 pretty quickly. They got even more men. Uh, I think the final force was about 1,200. And oddly enough, they, they had 16 Catawbas came because they just saw the opportunity to kill Cherokees, which had been their, their longstanding enemies. And they thought, well, this is great. We get to go kill Cherokees. So from Dew's Corner, now they've got sufficient men. That's a pretty good force. They had some Georgia troops to come up, militia troops to come over. Their numbers totally got up to about uh, 1,600 men. That's, that's a considerable force. Of course, you've got to remember, the Cherokees are, you know, they're not, uh, they weren't born yesterday either. They, they have a considerable uh, number of warriors put on the field too and have quite a, quite amount of, uh, a good bit of experience with, with warfare. So when you say due west, that's right there at the line, right? Yes, that's right on that line I was talking about. So the Cherokee towns closest to there would have been? Seneca. Seneca. S it, it originally was S. Seneca, E-S-S-E-N-E-C-A. -S -S right. There's been some speculation over the years that it was named for the Seneca Indians in New York, the temperate. No, 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 it's not. As a matter of fact, it turns out now that the original spelling was Seneca. Seneca. That's a, that's a different ending altogether. It was spelled, Europeans spelled it S-E-N-N-E-K-A-W. Now, one thing you have to understand about all the old literature you read about Cherokees and about Cherokee villages and this aspect of the Revolutionary War is the Cherokees didn't have a written language until 1820 when, um, when, they, when the Sequoia developed the Cherokee alphabet, which revolutionized their culture because now all they, have, they could have a written language and, Really was a tremendous, uh, you know, data point in their in their time timeline of history when they got a written language. But before that, they the the Europeans who came through here, whether they were British troop or traders or early settlers, they could only write down what they heard, and they write it down phonetically. Uh, in other words, whatever word you heard them say, so you heard them say uh, Asendinga, which was their name for the Kiwi River. They wrote that 12 different ways. You know, if you were French, you heard that and you expressed it in writing a different way. And I, I, you will see in the literature Dews Corner, named for William Dews, D-E-W-E-S, as Duet's Corner. French would call it Duet. They would look at D-E-W-E-S and call that Duet. So they wrote it on a map. If you look on Mouzon's map from 1775, for example, Mouzon was French. And, and he wrote it as Douay, D-U-E-T-T, DeWitt's Corner, on and on and on. And, and, and so anyway, uh, whenever you see the name of a Cherokee village or a Cherokee chief or some, some place name from Cherokees, take it with a grain of salt. That's what some European interpreted what he heard and wrote down. For example, I have four contemporaneous journals from soldiers in, in either the Archibald Montgomery campaign of 1759 and then the James Grant campaign of 17, well, 1760 for Montgomery, 
1761 for the James Grant campaign. And I have soldiers' diaries. They spelled East Toy about seven different ways, you know, with a different ending, W-E-H, W-O-I-E, East Toy. Uh -huh. uh, so anyway, that just take all that with a grain of salt. So Alexander Cameron, I mean Andrew Williamson, his mission is to go find Alexander Cameron and put a stop to this. Their intelligence, their scouts tell him that Andrew Cameron, Alexander Cameron is camped on Oconee Creek, which if folks are familiar with, with the upstate of South Carolina, they probably know where Oconee Station is. Okay, Oconee Creek is very close, very close to Oconee Station. And there is a village. Is that Highway 11 right there? Yeah, it's in the vicinity of Highway 11. Yeah. There is a village, well, it was a Cherokee village called Acone Town. It was, again, written by Europeans as A-C-O-N-N-E, Acone, but it was Oconee. Excuse me. And, and so they, they have intelligence that Alexander Cameron is camped there with about 30 Cherokees and, and some white folks dressed as Cherokees. This was a tactic that they were using was was making white guys they could go out and, and attack these villages and everything and give the impression that the Cherokees were doing it and they'd get blamed for it. It was just to incite confusion and chaos and all this. All right, so it sounded like a pretty simple thing. We're going to march up there. We're going to take him by surprise because this is intelligence that they've gotten from spies. He don't know we know where he is. And so Alexander, I mean, uh, Andrew Williamson takes his 1,200 men plus now and they camp on 6 and 20 Creek, which is just outside of Pendleton, where Pendleton is now. That's about a 12, 15 mile march. And so they're gonna leave. They left at six o'clock in the evening, I think, hoping to get to Oconee Creek about the break of dawn and surprise them, you know, when they're getting up and fixing breakfast and yawning and you know, off guard. And so they, they arrive at the Seneca River. The only ford, major ford, the river they have to ford is the Seneca River. The Seneca River is the Kiwi River plus 12 Mile Creek. It's the Kiwi River to the point where 12 Mile Creek running through through the town of Pickens here. 12 Mile Creek merges, it becomes the Seneca River. So the crossing at Seneca River was a long-standing, probably prehistoric ford. All fords, when you talk about fording the river, the Broad River at Cherokee Ford, and all, these are these are places where the river is wide and shallow and have a hard bottom. Hard bottom meaning there's probably a rock shelf under there. If you didn't, if you just were, if you just tried to ford the Savannah River, for example, just at random anywhere, number one, it'd be way over your head. And number two, the first wagon that went through would, would stir up all the mud and the silt and everything, which washes downstream and you got a hole. So the second wagon, it's two feet deeper than it was when the one came before. And by the time the 10th wagon comes through, He's completely underwater, so they got to have a hard bottom. So this was a perennial ford, and it went right through the uh, Seneca or Seneca Cherokee village. And, and this is now right where anybody who's familiar with the upstate of South Carolina probably knows where uh, the Madron Center at Clemson University is and the, and the Walker Golf Course and the Department of Natural Resources Clemson office in between those two places on the Seneca River. It's now under Lake Hartwell, but that's where it was. So they marched through the night, through what is now Pendleton, head straight for the Seneca River. And as they're approaching the road that they're on, uh, which is the old Cherokee Path, went right through the middle of the Seneca Village. So they're, they're about to cross the river going over to the county. It was on both sides of the Seneca River. 
according to the documentation that's available, the, the council house, the center of the city was on the west side or the Oconee County side of the river. But most of the residences, the, the little cabins, they were living in log cabins about 1775, were on the Pickens County side of the river. So in the middle of the darkness, they're approaching, they're going down the road, coming down through there, and there are split rail fences on both sides of the roads, and there, there's corn growing on there. And the Cherokees and some white folks dressed as Cherokees have hidden themselves just behind that row of corns and behind the screen of that. And remember, it's dark. And when they start to cross the river, they're taking in fire. I mean, it was hot. Coming from, they don't know where it's coming from. It's, it's the middle of the night. There's, there's shooting coming from everywhere. Francis Salvador was, was the first Jewish American killed in the American Revolution. He was killed almost immediately. He made the bad decision. Uh, most of the militia wore what was called in the Civil War butternuts, which is kind of a tan or tawny brown uniform and stained by white walnuts, which are called butternuts, butternut walnut. And so it was muted and kind of camouflaged. He wore a white a white shirt and white pants. I don't know what that was all about, but he, night, he, he must out. have stood out like you've seen these. I remember on Little Rascals, there was a scene where they're ghosts and you know they're like bed sheets and they're dancing up and down and they stand out like a neon light so unfortunately he was shot and didn't die immediately but Williamson went over to him and this is kind of sad but his his slave it was common for militia leaders and even continental soldiers in some cases Andrew Pickens for example had his slave uh, named Dick who was a constant companion throughout the Revolutionary War wherever Andrew Pickens was Dick was there too well, Williamson was going to go attend to him when he saw him fall, and he thought his slave was over there attending to him, so he had had his horse shot out from under him, so he had other things to attend to, and he figured he's being taken care of, Well, in fact, they were over there scalping him. Oh. And so he lived for a while. Williamson went over there the last few minutes that he was lying, and he said, did we win? And he said, yes, we did. The battle was over at that point. He said, yes, we, we whipped him. And then and he died. It's a pretty sad situation.